This is the second of our Peridot podcast series, Conversations with Leaders. I'm Emma Raft from Peridot, and today we're chatting to Judith Davey, Chief Executive at the Advocacy Project, a world in which everyone has a voice. The Advocacy Project helps marginalised communities to speak up, understand their rights, and make choices. Indeed, an incredible 40% of their staff started as service users. Judith has been CEO since 2016, and before that, she was Director of People, Performance and Accountability at ActionAid. Hello, Judith. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I'm going to start with your recent article in the Civil Society magazine, which is incredibly honest, and it's really about where the charity was when you, you took over. So I'm, I'm going to quote, because you say, three years ago, morale and motivation among the workforce at the Advocacy Project was at rock bottom. The board had diminished in size and energy over time and many of the trustees had left. You also talk about it in terms of the star survey that you did, which said that just 70% of employers felt that their senior managers communicated effectively about what the organisation was trying to achieve and you were coming into somewhere where the staff turnover was at about 50%. So, Mm. I mean, it's a big question, but I'm going to start. So where do you start coming into that? I started by listening and, and learning one of the first things I did as, as you said was to do a staff survey there hadn't been one previously the results were were pretty revealing as you say um, there was not much of a sense of confidence in senior leadership unusually for an advocacy organization people didn't feel free to speak up and about what was working or not working within the organization and there was some real kind of inequalities that the organization had grown through merger so we had different people on different terms and conditions doing more or less the same the same job and that hadn't been addressed over time so that was quite quite difficult for people if they felt that one of their colleagues was was paid you know quite a bit more than they were for the same sort of work so I did some early diagnostics as say staff survey some research benchmarking those kind of things to get a real sense of what the issues were an important part of that as well as the staff survey was talking to commissioners funders but also the people that we work with and support and that was quite a different story interestingly the people that we work with were strongly positive about the organization and the quality of the work and commissioners and funders were too so it's it's a real credit to staff that whatever they were feeling internally about leadership they were really focusing on doing their their best for the people we work with and that seemed to come across they were people were still proud to work there absolutely around that communication as well yes yes that's right And, and how does that feel coming in as a chief exec knowing this is how the organization is feeling it was tough and you know the sense of somebody else coming in is this really going to make a difference uh, that that sense of the jury being out and it's a question of 
digging deep within you and finding that courage, that courage of your convictions, listening to people and then slowly but surely addressing the issues and as you say, communicating to people we can do this now, this is a bit more complicated or take a bit more time because, so we're not going to forget about it, we, we'll share the plan, but we'll get to it in time. So it, it was really trying to take people on that, on that journey and delighted to say that, you know, within a year we'd, we'd turned a lot of these things round and again the following year, so when you compare staff survey results in 2016 to 2019, completely different picture, you know, 100% of staff feel, you know, that their manager genuinely cares for their well-being and that their work makes a difference. And that's that's huge difference to how it was <laughs> yeah. previously. So all of us, you know, not just me as the, the chief exec, but the management team, the service managers and staff, you know, everyone played their, their part in achieving those results. So, and, and, and how do you do that on a practical level? Because you work in different spaces, different offices, how do you make sure people feel connected? So one of the things that we do is a monthly staff briefing and that's our primary means of getting people together so that they feel part of the bigger organisation rather than just being in a, a tiny remote office somewhere. And we give organisational updates, share news, but crucially different members of staff take it in turns to talk about their work, what they're doing, what they're proud of, what the challenges have been, what they've worked through. So everyone gets a real sense of that. So although it's kind of an organisational communication tool, it's it's kind of co-owned and and co-delivered with staff. And I think that's a really important thing. Some people dial in through Zoom or Skype because it's not always practical to get everyone together. We have people that work in Broadmoor or in other forensic units. They, they can't get out and join staff meetings as easily as other groups of people. So we find ways of connecting people through, through technology and also through management visits. The senior management team and I, we have a rotor and we make sure that every site is is visit you know sees a senior manager at, at least once or twice a oh, month so real commitment real commitment to to being seeing visible people. and seeing people yes yes and um once once a year the staff briefing we say everyone comes together so we make arrangements with all the different sites and hospitals and commissioners and plan plan around that so that people get a real sense of who they're working with and what's going on and that kind of thing. Because you have co- complex work, you're working in lots of different areas um, with lots of different types of people. I mean, um, I obviously introduced you and what the, what the charity does at the beginning, but how would you describe what you do? We do work with lots of different people with different challenges and different circumstances that you know, can make them vulnerable. So mental health, learning disabilities, dementia, you know, all, all, all kinds of things. People that exhibit hoarding behaviours, you know, when their house is full of stuff. And uh, yeah, 
so we work with all sorts of different people across all you know jargon but across all different care groups but there are some common principles that kind of underpin all that sort of honesty transparency helping people stand on their own two feet helping people speak for themselves do things for themselves rather than us doing it for them and we focus a lot on creative communication and other communication techniques so that people that are perhaps not verbal or not easily verbal or or communicating in particular ways that we can engage with them and figure out what they want and how they want to work with us so i think those those are common threads um, across all those different care groups and of course passion uh, passion as well working with people to help them be better able to stand up for themselves and make meaningful choices about what happens in their lives so that that's a common underpinning well it seems like yeah and you and you bring it to work you know the the statistic i said at the beginning around 40 percent of people would use the service and now staff yeah and 50 percent of trustees wow i mean (laughs) how do you make how does how do you make that happen we tried hard i i guess is the answer in our uh, and i know we work with you um, to recruit trustees, for example, but part of our trustee recruitment pack, we're, we're very clear about the sort of values that we have as an organisation, the kind of work that we do, and the kind of values and interests and things that potential trustees contribute. So I think that's quite important, setting that out quite quite clearly. But then when people engage with us, they, they soon know whether it's something they're comfortable with or not. Because just to take an example, there are people with learning disabilities on the board, people with mental health problems mm. on the board. So we've developed a way of working. We have easy read management accounts. We have various approaches in place to make sure that everyone can make a full contribution to decision making and strategy and those kinds of things so when people understand about that it becomes quickly apparent to them whether it's the sort of organization they would feel comfortable in or or, or not and you've also worked with um the ncvo to create a good trustee guide yes yes we did simplifying language absolutely making it in more accessible format. So, you know, it's passionate for what you're doing, but across the sector as well. Yes, yes. Well, it was really interesting. The new version of the Good Trustee Guide came out. So we always, as a board, engage with whether it's the the governance code, the trustee guide or the code of ethics. We always kind of engage with that and look at how to put that into practice. But there was no easy read version of the Good Trustee Guide. So we got in touch and said, (laughs) can we work together on it? And, you know, Carl and and others at NCVO were great. And it was was a great partnership project. Yeah, because it's also, it's about bringing diversity to the board. And you're very proud to say that your your board reflects the diversity that you have in the community. That's right. That's that's absolutely right. And one of the, the other interesting things about the board is... It's 
got its unitary status, and I'll come on to that in a moment, but we sought permission from the Charity Commission to pay service user trustees for their contribution to the board. Those with with more professional jobs, professional roles, it's easier to take time off to join trustee meetings and you make up yeah. the time later. Not everyone is, that, is that, able to yeah, do that. that excludes people. It does exclude people. So we asked the Charity Commission and made a case for paying service user trustees mm-hmm. at London Living Wage and we were delighted to say that they approved the application and that's that's what we do. That's amazing. And mm. that's actually showing that you're you're creating that diversity and respecting people and understanding their needs as well. That that's right. And it's we also hope that through what we do and how we act and how we operate maybe it will kind of inspire others and 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 cause you know other organizations to think about whether it's possible to do some of these things themselves and just create opportunities for a, a broader group of people you mentioned a unitary board what is that and how so, did that come about as yeah, well? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it came out of the NCVO all-party parliamentary group for charities and volunteering, their Christmas meeting year before last. And one of the topics of conversation was accountability mm. and bearing in mind some of the what could be regarded as governance failures in the not-for-profit sector yeah. and what for, how can governance be strengthened to address this. So that's when we first started thinking about this. But we chose to go for a unitary board and that's where the chief exec is a part of the board so has a trustee role, mm-hmm. a non-exec role, a, an unremunerated trustee role separate from the role of of chief exec because we felt that it was not right that the chief exec under the normal charity governance model where the chief exec is not part of the board there's a power imbalance there between so why should the chief exec have less responsibility in law for given their you know, massive influence on the results, the strategic direction of the organisation, then people on the board with lived experience or learning disabilities or whatever. So we felt it was it was a way of being more accountable and addressing those those power imbalances. So we we did a governance review that that looked at the controls, the governance handbook, the uh, assurance and mechanisms Mm. that we've got in place. We got an external firm of lawyers that have got expertise in governance to do a review of the pros and cons of going for a unitary board. And they came out quite quite clearly saying that we did have all the checks and balances in place. Uh, to make sure that this worked effectively and we did a review at the end of the first year and I think people everyone felt that you know it was working working. well and we would continue. Why do you think other charities don't take this up or or think about this? 
I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And it, it's a really interesting question because at the time we went for Unitary Board, it, it did get picked up in the sector press. And a lot of the press was questioning, juries out, sometimes actually quite negative about it. Slippery slope, things, mm-hmm. you know, expressions like that were used. Maybe it's just a different way of doing things. I think that people were concerned that it would introduce a more commercial kind of approach because unitary boards are common in the private sector and in the NHS. So I, I wonder if people that's thought it. it would become commercial at the expense of mission, but that's not our experience. We, we think it enhances mission mm-hmm. because it, you know, because it's it's holding me and the board to account for what, what we're you're doing. doing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> it seems so to make interesting. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you've reviewed it as well. As yes, you said. that's right. So you yeah. know it's working and yeah. all those things that you're putting in, yeah. the process, the, the checking, everything's working. That's right, that's right. And the staff survey results that you can see here over the last three years and the increase in our income and our service user and commissioner funder satisfaction mm-hmm. has gone up too. So whichever kind of measure you look at, it has helped us, you know, deepen that focus on mission. I mean, it sounds like as a chief exec, you've experienced and led quite a lot of change over the last few mm. years. Mm. Is there anything that you can pull out that you think this is what I'm most proud of or challenges as well? I think I'm most proud of standing, each of us as individuals, as the organisation, standing next to people whose circumstances make them vulnerable and help them achieve better outcomes for themselves. I think that's the thing I'm most proud of, but I'm incredibly proud of the transformation in terms of staff engagement, turnover, you know, all all the measures that you can see, you know, the confidence that staff have in senior management now compared to when we started. I'm incredibly proud of that too. Also proud of how we've diversified our funding. When I took on the role three three years ago, I think it was about 80% of our income came from one single source one single contract and and that's now we've got a lot more work to do I'm not saying it's perfect Mm. but that 80% is now way below 50% so so that that shows how we've grown and how we've diversified so I'm really proud of that too but I'm also really proud of the senior leadership and, and staff because I say this is not just about me we 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 sat down as an organization all of us looked at what we wanted to fix what sort of organization we wanted to be what sort of values we wanted mm. and we all kind of shoulder to shoulder worked on putting that in place so you know I think that's and values are key I mean yeah that's what you know you talk about in your article but as values-led leadership as well Mm. I guess Mm. the expectations that you have from all of the staff as well to to live those values yes yes it's very important to not put yourself outside um, the the kind of things that you're expecting 
other members of staff to do. And just as a, a, a for instance, one of the things that I've just brought in as a policy across all our managers is getting the national advocacy qualification in managing advocacy services. So I've made that mandatory for, for senior managers, but I'm putting myself through that course too because I think you, you have to um, really important. show, yeah. Uh, yeah, you have to lead in that, in that way. I think with the leadership that you've developed within, within the organisation, you've done a lot of change, but this was also your first chief exec role wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. But I was deputy at Actionary. Mm. But but I I do have a lot of experience of change and change management and change projects, both in the commercial sector and in in local government as 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 well. And in the past, won awards for bringing back kind of customer resident focus change in local councils that kind of thing so it was it was drawing on those kind of skills mm-hmm. change management skills and really bringing a business like focus to the charity sector so i don't mean just being commercial but being business like and professional, professional. Yeah, mm. alongside the values as well. Absolutely. And that having yeah. been key. Yeah, and I've always had those values. I have uh, first started volunteering in charity, or actually it was in an old people's home when I was 14. So I've always kind of va- um, volunteered, always contributed to charity. So I've always had those those kind of values. Yeah, and very community spirited mm. as well. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So what's your vision then for the charity the next two or three years? What do you want to see? I want to find ways of, and we've got lots of exciting plans, but I want to find exciting, innovative ways of working more efficiently and more effectively using technology and, and other kinds of things so that we can impact more people's lives more significantly by working in different kinds of ways. We've piloted things like advocacy is typically delivered face-to-face, so that means travel and time and, and all those kinds of things. But we have piloted delivering advocacy by Skype or oh, wow. Zoom on on the phone with people with learning disabilities and, and it, it wouldn't work for all of them but but it does work for some. Carers tend to be time poor so not taking time out of their day to come to a meeting works really well so we're trying to find ways of working with people that works for them them, that suits their needs needs, but actually is more efficient and effective for us as well yeah lots to do yeah absolutely (laughs) and if you had any advice to giving to give someone who was perhaps starting a new role as a chief exec who might be coming into similar situation what would your advice be to them I think be, be brave be courageous have the courage of your convictions reach out to people listen find out and then produce the plan for moving forward with with everyone co-produce the plan for fixing and moving forward because then that builds 
support, commitment, and people understand how to relate what they do on a day-in, day-out basis with the direction that the organisation's going and they feel part of it. So that's what I would say. And they feel the trust as well. Absolutely. Transparency. There was also a focus that you had, which I read about in the article, around um, staff, mental health and well-being. And that seems key as well for the organisation to work well. Is there a reason why that was such a focus? A lot of staff do have lived experience of mental health. And mental health, sometimes you're really well, you're at the top of your game, and then sometimes you become more unwell. So it's about having the right employee assistance helplines, the right employee policies, procedures in place, well-being plans in place, so that if people feel they are becoming unwell, it's a, it's a conversation that can easily, easily be had with the manager and you can plan around that. And if people need to take time out, that's fine. We can, we can plan for that. And then they can come back again when they're feeling better. So that's, that's how we work with staff. That's how we also work with service users as, as well, because we try and find pathways to employment for service users, as we've discussed before. And if you've got flexible working policies and things like access to counselling and coaching mm. and mentoring, people can engage. And then, you know, the benefits to the organisation are, are huge, yeah. as we can show from, you know, the quantitative results. Well, it, it is worth yeah. doing. It, I mean, it speaks for itself. Mm. The, mm. the innovation that you're doing, both in governance, but with staff or well-being, mm. with your service users, the digital mm. transformation... It's incredible. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. leave it there. Thank you. Um, and say thank you very much for your time. I am going to suggest that everyone who's listening goes and reads the article in the Civil Society and we'll post the link on our website. Oh, thank you. And if you're interested in finding more about our leadership network, I'd say anyone who's listening to go to peridopartners.co.uk forward slash leadership where you can sign up for our events but also listen to our other podcasts. And thank you very much, Judith. Thank you, Emma. <laughs>